Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. David Rice will join us to discuss computer security. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. to the Grox Science Show. Well, software has become one of the foundations of modern civilization, but unlike other staples of our daily lives, the security and safety of software is far from guaranteed, posing not just a technical problem, but an economic one as well. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. David Rice. Mr. Rice is an internationally recognized information security professional, recognized by the U.S. Department of Defense for his significant contributions to advancing the security of national infrastructure and global networks. He has penned the new book, Geekonomics, the Real Cost of Insecure Software. And Mr. Rice, uh, we'd like to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Great. It's wonderful being here. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is a, a very fascinating book. It's certainly one that affects us all. In the book, you argue that software being a major part of today's infrastructure is really not very secure. No, it's not. When, when we look at the type of activities we see on the Internet, all the way from you know cyber activities, from cyber espionage to cyber crime, even cyber warfare, much of this, is, in many respects, is enabled by defects that software manufacturers fail to detect themselves before releasing their products into the global stream of commerce. You argue that, in fact, the consumers are being used as crash test dummies. Oh, absolutely. So, so when we look at a product that's put out into the space, there's inevitably some defects that might be in a product, and those are usually shaken out very quickly. But in those industries, those companies are oftentimes liable for any defect. Even if, a, let's say, a Coke bottle, the glass breaks and cuts someone, that falls under strict product liability. So even someone like a soft drink manufacturer can be held accountable. But when we look at software, it really isn't. In fact, we've gotten so used to bugs in software that manufacturers easily and, and willingly put out products that aren't quite tested to the degree that they should be, even for operational use, let alone security protection. And consumers end up being the crash test dummies for these defects and flaws. And what are really the costs of having all these defects in software? Well, there's financial costs and then there's economic costs. So the financial costs are in the tens of billions of dollars. It ranges anywhere from you know $60 billion to $120 billion, depending on whose numbers you end up using. The costs, though, are significant financially to the United States. Let's just take a, a very sound number, which is about $100 billion. Putting this in the context, that's how much the United States spent on recovering from Katrina. And The Economist said that was the shaming of America. I and mean, We spend almost $100 billion on insecure software every year in the United States, and we don't even blink. When we start looking at the economic costs of insecure software, it can be even greater. The United States has 10 times the amount of intellectual property that the rest of the world has combined, and a lot of that intellectual property resides on computer networks. So we see in the acts of cyber espionage, we see foreign nation states aggressively targeting U.S. companies, the Department of State, 
Department of Defense. We see them targeting contractors. And estimates are somewhere between 10 and 20 terabytes worth of information that has been siphoned off of our networks. Now, of course, not all of it is completely sensitive or all of it intellectual property, but it shows you the level and the extent attackers go through to acquire either information about individuals in U.S. companies or the actual intellectual property itself. And when that intellectual property is gone, so too are the jobs that that intellectual property ultimately supported. So when we start looking at the economic loss, we start talking about the real cost. And the real cost of something isn't necessarily what you pay for it. It's what you give up in order to get it. And what's becoming very clear is that we're giving up national and economic security. And when we look at the rise of activities on the Internet, it's amazing. When we look back in the 1990s, oh, to go back to that golden age when all, all we had to worry about was a bunch of teenage hackers defacing some websites. But if you look at the progression of criminal behavior in the physical world, it actually mirrors the type of things we've seen in the cyber world. And what I mean by this is that when we see graffiti and, and other elements of disorder in the physical space, what this does is start enticing and inviting more acts of criminal activity. It's called a broken windows theory. And that means small elements of disorder, like graffiti, invite greater elements of disorder, like more serious forms of crime, going all the way from burglary to murder and rape. Well, when we hearken back to the 1990s in cyberspace and we say, well, gosh, there are 14-year-old kids defacing websites, well, the website defacement is a graffiti tag. It really is someone coming in there and saying, hey, look at me, I just owned your website. But what that did was send a message into the cyberspace environment, and it said, hey, listen, guys, if these 14-year-olds can get away with the facing websites, what can we, the more serious, criminally-minded, get away with? So then all of a sudden we see a rapid progression, not just of teenagers breaking into websites, but all of a sudden criminal syndicates hiring hackers, uh, gaining the skills themselves, to the point that in 2006, 2006 was dubbed the year of cybercrime to be followed quickly by 2007, which was dubbed the year of cyber espionage. So we can see a vast decline in the level of security that we have despite massive expenditures on firewalls, antivirus, intrusion detection, all the other products that we think will protect us and very rarely protect us the way they need to. I mean, given that there's such a huge cost to all these security flaws in software, why is there no real incentive for software makers to actually improve the security of their product? Well, there's no incentive because security isn't part of the beauty contest. Um, you know, a while back, 10 years ago, Microsoft itself only had like four or five vulnerabilities. But as it started getting more and more popular, of course, more and more attackers were drawn to it. We see the same uh, thing happening to Apple right now. Apple at 3% market share a couple of years ago really wasn't the target. And Apple people could sit back and say, hey, listen, we're not really the targets of these cyber criminals and these poor PC guys. They're getting owned left, right, and center. But all of a sudden, when Apple hit about 6% market share, and currently, as of last week, I think they hit about 8% market share, Apple has just been getting pummeled time and time again with new vulnerabilities being discovered. And people say, well, you know, the severity isn't as great, or some are bad and some aren't as bad. But remember, Microsoft started with just a couple of vulnerabilities, too. As Apple starts gaining market share, it becomes a sexier and sexier target for attackers because they just want to own it because it's cool. But also they realize there are more targets to be had, more people, and there aren't quite as many security products available for Apple users as there are for PC users. But what this is is a really bad trend. What it shows us is that 
Security is not part of the beauty contest. That means manufacturers distinguish themselves by features. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I buy a house because it has features. I buy a car because it has features. And gosh darn it, I buy software because it has features. But what I can't see is the lack of security in that software until it becomes so popular, attackers start uncovering all these defects, and all of a sudden it's too late. Then everyone's in a patching race to try to patch their software before they get compromised or exploited by some hacker out there. So one of the things we really need to do in the software marketplace is create an incentive for software manufacturers. And we have a number of different ways of doing this. We have legal, we have regulatory, we have legislative. But let's look at a more friendly example in terms of a regulatory control that we have in the auto market. With a car, I don't have to be a mechanic or even a safety expert in order to figure out whether my car is safe. I just look at a five-star rating and it says three stars, four stars, five stars. In fact, that rating has proved so successful that almost 90% of the cars in the United States now bear four or five-star crash test rating. In software, you don't know how much risk you're purchasing into. You don't know if it's three-star rated software or five-star rated software. All you have to go on is the assertions of your techie buddy or your geek friend or on the assertions of the manufacturer themselves. Well, like I said, once upon a time, Apple guys could say, oh, our software is better. And in fact, it really isn't any more secure because they keep getting attacked. Um, when we listen to assertions by Microsoft saying they're trustworthy or Oracle saying they're unbreakable or whoever it might be saying they're better than somebody else, these are really vacuous and cheap to make on the part of the manufacturers because there's no consequence when they're wrong. And they've been wrong multiple times. How where do you think consumers themselves are of the importance of actually the security issue? I mean, they need to demand it. Yeah, they, they need something visible, clear, and observable when it comes to security. So the incentive here, when we start talking about some type of a rating system, the incentive for auto manufacturers is to make a higher-rated vehicle. Why? Well, because if you insist on making a one-star rated vehicle, you actually forego all of the money you could have had by making a five-star rated car. In fact, the five-star rating system is actually an unsafe tax. It's a regulatory model implemented by the government but enforced by the market participants, that is, the buyers themselves. And buyers do care about safety if they can see it. And, of course, the same argument can be made for security. People do care about security, but they need to be able to see it. They need an easy way of understanding the security that they're purchasing into or the risk that they're purchasing into so that they can create an unsafe tax or an unsecure tax on software manufacturers. And then all of a sudden, if a software manufacturer insists on making a one-star rated piece of software, they're going to forego all of the money they could have had by making five-star rated software. So that's just one aspect of an incentives model where government could provide some type of regulatory structure, but what it does is let the manufacturers figure out the best and most efficient way of actually providing the protection consumers need. You don't have the government in there telling Ford how to make a car, but they do set the baseline. What we don't have in the software market is anything similar to that. It's basically write the software, push it out into the global stream of commerce, and the consumer bears all the burden, and that's just not fair. Indeed, indeed. This is certainly very useful at economic incentive, but how useful do you think would an actual regulatory body be for overseeing a lot of the development of such softwares? Well, what we don't want is heavy government involvement. One of the things that I think in the United States we don't appreciate is actually how efficient our regulatory bodies actually are. In fact, there's a Transparency International which stated that what most people envy about the United States is the lack of corruption and the efficiency of our bureaucracies, which is crazy for us because we think, oh, gosh, we want to get rid of it. But in fact, the U.S. is actually pretty good at putting efficient regulatory models into place. And the NHTSA is one of my favorite ones because what it shows is just government sets the boundaries. 
but it's up to the manufacturers to choose the most efficient and best ways of protecting the consumer because manufacturers are innovative. What regulation ultimately does is everyone's afraid of regulation really squashing innovation. And, you know, that argument has merit. But we also have to look at the positive side of regulation. And what it does is not necessarily squash innovation, but focus it. And that's what's really critical, I think, in the software market right now. Because the light of innovation in the software market is incredibly bright. It's just unfocused. That means you can do anything with software that you want, except apparently secure it. So what regulatory mechanism can do is actually focus the efforts of software manufacturers. So if there's a field of, let's say, A, B, C, D, E, and F, what it does is really constrain the field down to A, B, C, and D, such that the manufacturers don't have to satisfy all the wild feature creep and needs of the consumers. So the consumers are also in this, too. They're also participants, and they incentivize manufacturers certain ways. If you want features, well, heck, that's what manufacturers will give you. Innovation helps kind of constrain the market such that it's still very vibrant. I mean, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry or the auto industry, these are heavily regulated, but oh my gosh, are they innovative. So innovation can be very good. And my whole point is that let's not just look at the negative aspects of it, which are something that we should you know, consider, but we also have to look at the positive effects. And what it does is focus innovation and make it even better. Uh, one of the other surprising things is that many of these software manufacturers are not actually liable for some of the security issues that are in their software. Would making them more liable actually help as well? Uh, yeah, the argument here is that liability is not necessarily something to be shunned. When we look at strict product liability or we look at any tort litigation, immediately people throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, we're just going to make all the lawyers rich. And in fact, it's not really true that we make lawyers rich. Lawyers make themselves rich. But when we look at the American populace, less than 2% of them actually bring suit in court. That's an incredibly low number when you call us the litigious society. Based on other statistics, you could call us things a lot worse, but not litigious based on 2%. So the liability model is simply a mechanism for allowing software manufacturers to take ownership of their responsibility to the consumer. When we look at, say, strict product liability, that really falls under companies that either can kill or harm human beings. So it only applies when your product actually hurts someone physically. So strict product liability would certainly apply in any instance where software can be shown to actually hurt a human being. What this doesn't do is help us address a really significant problem of cybercrime and, and malicious activities on the Internet. That falls under another, and forgive this because this is a mouthful, the tort of the negligent enablement of cybercrime. And what this tort does, or what it says, is that, Vulnerabilities lead to highly foreseeable acts of maliciousness on the Internet. Basically, but for these vulnerabilities, many of the things that we see in cybercrime would not be taking place. There are certainly other things, too. And what this tort model actually does is subscribe a balance of culpability between what the consumer is responsible for and what the manufacturer is responsible for. And that's, in fact, what we see in the auto market right now. If you drive drunk, that's not the fault of the auto manufacturer. You're going you're gonna to take it on the head for the team from that perspective. But if there's a defect in the car, well, then it's obviously the manufacturer's fault. Right now, when you sign that licensing agreement or agree to that licensing agreement in software, you're basically absolving the software manufacturer from any and all responsibility, accountability, or liability for any damage or harm that software may cause. 
That's not really fair. That's an adhesion contract. And under a legal viewpoint, really, adhesion contracts are abominations. They really give an unfair advantage of manufacturers over smaller, uncoordinated entities like consumers. So a liability model is simply a way of balancing culpability. It's not pointing the finger at the software manufacturers and blaming them for all the ills of society. That's not it. What it is, it's a balance of culpability between the consumer, what they should be responsible for. If they share a password, that's not the fault of the manufacturer. But it also provides a clear level of separation so that anything the manufacturer should have done, like finding a vulnerability before releasing the product, that's something that falls in the manufacturer and it's something they should be held liable for. Uh, I'm curious, you have a chapter in the book about open source software. How does that fit into this model? Well, open source offers a lot of potential for the software market. The of the open source community is that, well, because you can see the source code and because you can evaluate it, you have a better chance of making it secure. And that's always been hotly debated. In fact, a report that was just put out by Fortify Software said that open source software isn't more secure. In fact, the security practices of open source falls way behind commercial software. In my eyes, we can argue that back and forth. I think openness does help software security to a certain extent, and having the source code in front of you certainly does help. It would give me a little bit more assurance. But, of course, who evaluates the code is a completely different problem. So we can debate that back and forth. I think, really, if, if open source were to truly distinguish itself from closed source, it's to remove those contract disclaimers and insular statements within their own adhesion contracts, which basically says, hey, we're not responsible for any of this. And in fact, I have a problem with any manufacturer, open source or closed source, that puts a product out in a global stream of commerce and doesn't take accountability when their product can hurt hundreds of millions of people. It doesn't matter if it's open or closed. The point is whether it's defective or not. And so I think it doesn't hurt the open source movement to be liable. I think it just assigns liability where it belongs. Um, and that's on the manufacturer. It doesn't matter if it was 100 different people. If you're a service provider using open source and that software is shown to enable some highly foreseeable malicious acts and you didn't squeeze out those defects before getting the product out there, well, too bad. Software is in the big leagues now. It's a major portion of the economy. It drives entire infrastructures for nations. You want to play in the big leagues, you got to play by big boy rules, and that means being accountable, just like pharmaceuticals, just like nuclear power facilities, just like automobile manufacturers. Being free doesn't get you off. <laughs> well, it certainly is a very complicated issue, and I'm just curious maybe if you could distill the final recommendations for both consumers and manufacturers regarding what you think needs to happen for security software to happen. Certainly. I think uh, one thing is to realize is that, you know, software manufacturers are not to be vilified. It's simply a balance of culpability between the manufacturer and the consumer. The manufacturer isn't trying to make a bad product. Okay, They just don't have an incentive to make a better product. So the discussion and the debate that needs to be had is what incentives actually need to change within the software market for us to get the security that we actually need. So as consumers, we can try to coordinate and we can say, well, we're not going to buy bad software. The problem is if you turn your back on one software manufacturer, you're going to turn right into another one that offers the same type of adhesion contract or licensing agreement. The irony is, is that you don't really have a choice in software. You have a choice between manufacturers, but not between licensing agreements in terms of the culpability and, and the disclaimers that are there. So consumers can try to coordinate, but they're at a significant disadvantage because the legal model is actually going against them. So for them to coordinate and actually punish a software manufacturer is very difficult. This immediately brings in the issue of three different ways of proceeding. 
One, when we see this type of dysfunction in the software market, we know that the market has failed. That means no one can self-correct. Software manufacturers can't change the behavior. Consumers can't change the behavior. So some type of external stimulus is needed, and that falls into three categories, a legal liability model, a legislative model, and then a regulatory model. And from there, I think the three different aspects, whether it's a National Software Assurance Administration or some type of you know, National Software Act or Software Assurance Act or something like that, you know, when we see this, we see other acts that came out from Congress that said, okay, you know what? We have tolerated certain behavior for lack of a policy statement, whether it was slavery or whether it was, you know, auto manufacturers. The lack of a response on Congress and the Senate is a policy decision. And so the discussion needs to be had at a policy level within every nation state, even within a state legislator. Heck, it doesn't need to be at a federal level. Even the states can say, okay, you know what? California emissions are some of the most strict emissions in the world, and all the auto manufacturers abide by those emissions. The state of California could do the same thing with software insurance. It says we will only buy software of this type of quality, and that's it. If you want to use software for the state of California, no matter who you sell it to, these are the requirements. So it doesn't need to be a unified global response against software manufacturers. It can actually be point responses on the part of state legislatures to say we're not going to tolerate it anymore. We can't afford bad software. So those are just a handful of things that actually can go into the software market and create an external stimulus. Now, there's one final point. Microsoft, other companies, they've done a lot of effort of trying to make their code better. And actually, the Microsoft Trustworthy Initiative is actually something to be uh, modeled and praised. It's actually very good. The problem that we have, though, is up to each individual manufacturer to determine how much security testing they think is necessary. It doesn't mean that they know what the populace needs. It means they get to determine, based on their own economics and finances, what they're willing to do. So it doesn't matter how self-motivated individual software manufacturers may be because the uh, consumer really can't determine other than just manufacturing assertions about the quality of the software that they're getting. So I think something more visible needs to be given to the software, but it's to the consumers so that they know what they're buying into in terms of security. Uh, I'm curious, how close do you think we are to any of these type of movements? Well, the, the strict product liability and the, well, let me answer it in a in general sense first. One, it took us over 80 years to realize the modern safe vehicle that we have today. And that's something as complex as a car. Software is infinitely more complex than a car. So the 80-year window might be a 100-year window or more with software. This is a very complicated issue, and it's one that we should approach conservatively, but we have to approach nonetheless because we can't afford not to. The costs of doing so are exorbitant when we start looking or projecting it downstream. So at minimum, we're looking at 80 years worth of change. Now, on the more immediate front, what's starting to happen? Well, on the technology space, we're seeing some really good things. We're seeing companies like Ounce Labs, Fortify Software, Veracode. These are all software assurance companies that are actually it's software that checks software to make sure that it's actually secure. Veracode is perhaps one of the most promising aspects out there because what it does is assign a, and I have no affiliation with any of these companies, by the way. Veracode actually assigns a rating to the software. If it's AAA-rated software, the software is pretty darn good and it's pretty secure. And that means you have a visibility and a clearly visible way of looking at this and saying, okay, if this is AAA-rated software, it's probably pretty good for our enterprise. So that's a good thing on the technology front. On the legal front, we have strict product liability and that tort of negligent enablement of cybercrime that I talked about earlier. We see no cases in U.S. law right now involving these two, two aspects. In fact, there's a legal group out of Santa Clara University, Zoller, Z-O-L-L-E-R-S. I actually quote him in the book. 
they're the ones that pursued the strict product liability for software. Again, we've seen no cases in the U.S. just like The interesting thing, though, that we're seeing in Australia is that software companies are aggressively settling all tort litigation that's brought against them in order to avoid uh, any laws being set on the books, in, in other words, setting precedent within the Australian legal system. I haven't seen anything similar to that in the U.S. quite yet. I have some interns researching it, but I haven't seen the same behavior. But when you see, like, these civil action lawsuits against tobacco companies and pharmaceuticals, you can probably bet it's going to be just as bloody and as expensive on the software front when we actually start seeing those cases. Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting to see what happens when they finally do come about. Uh, yeah, like I said, bloody and expensive. You can quote <laughs> me on that. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Mr. Rice, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today and talking about the new book and, of course, the very fascinating issue, uh, Geekonomics, The Real Cost of Insecure Software. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And you were just listening to Mr. David Rice discussing computer security. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic vulnerable or secure. So for the falling five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are vulnerable or secure and maybe a little reason why. Mr. Rice, you are ready to play the game. I am already. Do I have a buzzer or anything? <laughs> if you have one handy, sure, you can buzz in. <laughs> All right, here we go. Person number one, vulnerable or secure Apple CEO Steve Jobs. Ooh, secure. I think it depends on what he's, the, the threat is to him, but uh, I think he's secure. He's just an amazing individual fighting off pancreatic cancer and running a couple of companies. In terms of his integrity and the way he runs his life, totally secure. <laughs> All right, number two is Bill Gates. Bill Gates, uh, also secure. If you're not secure at $100 billion plus, uh, you're helpless. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three is Oracle uh, founder Larry Ellison. Ooh, that's a tougher one. Uh, I'm going to say unsecure, only because I think the city of San Jose is still really torqued off at how he flies his jets at all hours of the night. So. <laughs> Centric, I hear. He is, he is. He loves Japanese restaurants, and he's got a big boat, but anyway. <laughs> all right, number four is Google founder Sergey Brin. Uh, I'm going to say secure, also at you know a couple billion plus in terms of market valuation, uh, if you're not secure. Uh, and plus, I mean, you can always search on him <laughs> and figure out if he is secure from there. True enough, true enough, until another search engine comes along. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, all right, number five, finally, it's the president of the United States, George Bush. Well, you know what? I, 
I'm going to say secure only because if I answer anything else, Secret Service will knock on my door. <laughs> Probably a wise answer on your part then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Mr. Rice, I do want to thank you. Uh, sticking around, playing the game, and of course, talking about your new book, which again is Geekonomics, The Real Cost of Insecure Software. Thank you again. Great. Thanks for the time. Cheers. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.